So thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, anytime. I'm just so thrilled that you know that you said yes. And I'm really looking forward to hearing more about the book and what led to writing it. And of course, to hearing you read. I am also looking forward to reading. I love to read out loud. It's been actually the, uh, the source of my interest in writing was reading to my daughters and uh, making up stories when we had to go on long auto trips. And so it kind of led into writing uh, on its own. Oh, I love that. I absolutely love that. And I feel like for so many of us, we just love being read to. And gosh, being able to read to your daughters then and tell stories to them then and like taking that love and passion to give to readers now, I feel like we just really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. So can we start with, was it dive in? It always helped. Oh, wonderful. Mm-hmm. So what led to the book? What led to Carp Cafe? At the time, I was um, working as a technical writer in Silicon Valley, and I was immersed in the the culture of office workers and um, uh, administrative lifestyle down there. I live most of my life in the East Bay, which is near San Francisco. So it's about 50 miles away. It's a different culture a different society, a very different lifestyle working in Silicon Valley. This was back in the late 80s and early 90s. And I decided to try and put together, uh, while I was working there, a sketch a sketch of what it's like in a sort of a humorous way of, of working in an administrative environment. What's that like? You know, can I can I capture that in a story? So I um, I got started with an idea which was very remote from what I was doing, which is what I wanted to do. And um, I didn't have anything written down, but I had uh, a lot of enthusiasm at the time. And I presented my idea to my mother-in-law, Audrey Dyer at the time, and gave her a pitch just to see if she got interested in that. And she was enthusiastic. She thought it was a good idea. And uh, so I went to writing uh, as I could, and I put together as much of a story to begin with as I could. And I took it back and I said, here, read my sketch. See what you think about it. And I loved her reaction. When I next saw her, she looked at me and said, well, how come it's not nearly as interesting when you're in your written word that it was when you were talking about it? And it really represented my first constructive, critical review of writing that I ever had, because I'd I'd never done anything like that before. And it was so inspiring to get that kind of feedback and and make me understand the challenge of writing that I dedicated the book to her. Oh, I love that. How cool is that? It's like you wrote it for that particular audience, or at least like with her in mind and her reactions to mine. And I absolutely love that you dedicated the book to her. Yes. She's passed. She died about 10 years ago. And um, it's uh, in a way, uh, her personality sort of fits the the character, Shelley Friedman. Both of them were middle aged women with drinking problems. Wow. So can we have a a reading, please? Okay, I'll do that. I um, have picked out three different segments, uh, sort of in a chronological order. Uh, Shelley Friedman, I don't want to 
waste put a lot of time into background, but she's a middle-aged woman, like I said, working in Glendale, California for a an employment business. And she's just had an interview with the main protagonist. His name is Tom Peterson. And she's scared to death that Tom is so with it and so young and dynamic that he's going to take her job. Mm-hmm. And um, she and goes from the interview back to her office, stopping at a favorite watering hole and had a drink before she went back to work. And while in her office, her boss asks to see her. And I start there with her boss. Shelly, there you are. Karen waved her in. I was about to give up on you. Karen Thomas peered at Shelly from behind tortoiseshell glasses. Piles of resumes and client files were stacked all over her desk. She was blonde, almost white. Actually, she had a tanned complexion that said Newport Beach and points south. She was almost half Shelley's age, yet she dressed like a throwback to the 70s. Her long, straight hair was parted in the middle and hung loosely over her shoulders. Karen's latest favorite accessory was scarves, and today she had on a bright green one with tassels that draped around her neck and shoulders. Her desk phone rang the moment Shelley came through the door. Let me get this call, Karen reached for the phone. This won't take long. It's Tom Peterson. Shelley sat in the only chair not covered with stacks of paper and watched the afternoon sun light up a row of palm trees along Colorado Boulevard. Their hanging fronds waved in the vigorous afternoon breeze, beckoning her to run away to more friendlier places. All right, Jeremy, put him on. Karen raised her brows and rolled her eyes at Shelley, pretending to be bored. Hi, Tom. Shelley let out a low groan and opened the LinkedIn app on her tablet. No, Karen lied. We still have a few more candidates to interview. She had a habit of fiddling with her hair when she talked on the phone. Shelley browsed the member directory until while she listened to Karen's every word. She entered Peterson Thomas. We'll be in touch just as soon as we get through the rest of the interviews, Tom. There he was. The photo looked retouched, and his job description didn't match what was on the resume he gave Shelley. What are all... Well, are these three extra job postings? And where is all this software work that he wanted to do at Henshaw? Like I said, we don't have a firm date yet. Despite how she felt about Tom, Shelley grudgingly noted his technique. It was phony as hell. But from the sound of Karen's voice, she appreciated his pushy strategy. Yes, that's fine. Karen twisted the strands of hair into tight blonde knots and let them recoil. A meeting table stood in one corner of Karen's office, covered with multicolored binders. In an effort to salute the season, a plastic Santa was climbing out of a pretend chimney behind the office door. Under the window, a philodendron ringed with tiny red and green lights cried out for water. On her desk, A framed snapshot of her husband, Josh, smiled gamely at the camera. It was a perfect expression while he competed with the stapler and pencil holder for Karen's attention. Karen rotated her index index finger in the air in a wrap-it-up gesture. Yeah, 
Well, you don't have to worry about that. Okay, thanks for calling. We'll be in touch. Bye. A deep breath later, the receiver still in her ear. She jabbed a finger in one of the phone's extension buttons. Jeremy, hold my calls. Thanks. Phew, Karen hung up, waving a hand near her face. He's a hot topic. She settled back in her chair. Okay, now, where were we? Nowhere, really, Shelley said, concentrating on her tablet. I came in when the phone rang. Oh, wow. So, you know, um, thank you for that. And I love that you do voices because <laughs> it really felt like they, there's a difference between someone reading to you who wants to read it. And there's just that energy and engaging. Mm. So thank you ever so much for that. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Oh, I do. I do. Um, so can you t- you say um, Shelley was inspired or modeled a little bit on your mother-in-law? Correct. So That's how right. do you do, how do you keep the two separate and like, and where can you, um, where does Shelly kind of become her own character and where, like, you know, um, I'm always curious when we write about people, we know where we can fictionalize mm-hmm. and where we say, um, this is, you know, you on the page. Right. That's a good question. And for me, the um, separation is all associated with the other characters in the, in the novel. As the other characters interact with Shelley, Shelley becomes not my mother-in-law, but becomes somebody who has to interact with, well, I guess you'd call them strangers, but they're characters that are fictionalized. And that leads into another personality. So she's no longer my mother-in-law. She's a completely independent person based on her, but growing in a different direction. Would other people have recognized her in the book or the, or like the, the people who would have known your mother-in-law have recognized her in the book or not necessarily? Uh, my wife recognizes her. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and how did you feel about it? Well, um, I, I thought it was successful. I thought, well, by, you know, uh, my wife, Becky, recognized the essence of her mother in Shelley, and um, she um, was able to give me feedback uh, in, in interesting ways, which also developed into a lot of my wife's own relationship with her mother and, you know, how she felt about the character's development and how close or how much she wanted to keep them separate. So it was, it opened up a lot of, I thought, worthwhile, constructive dialogue about the story's progress. Oh, how wonderful. It sounds like it would be um, an engaging family process as well. So how nice that you could share that with each other. (laughs) Could we have another reading, please? Yes. All right. So this next reading, Shelley has now been, offered the opportunity to take the day off uh, before a great deal of work is going to be uh, coming up at her job. And her boss recommends that she try out this little funky beach town called Carpinteria, which is up the coast from Glendale. And Shelley doesn't know it from Adam. And um, she's finally decides with a lot of coming and going, decides to take her boss up on it and takes the drive up the coast to Carpinteria. And as you can imagine, uh, there's another aspect in this that uh, comes into play, and that is that 
we had in Southern California during the during this time, which was like 2017, 2018, a horrible fire, uh, a major fire that nearly burned Carpinteria down. It was called the Thomas Fire. Uh, December of 2017, it went on until about March of 2018. And that fire I incorporated into the story as an aspect of the town's point, you know, frame of mind. Everyone was freaked out after this fire. It came so close that the town nearly burned down. And so Shelley is agitated about her interview with this guy, Tom Peterson. She's worked up over this, this, this future that she's worried about. And she's also anxious about seeing all of this destruction on the road, getting to Carpinteria, all the burned homes, all of the ash and things that are on the side of the road, the results of the fire. And so she's in an agitated state when she gets into town. We'll start from there. Can I help you? A tanned young woman wearing jeans and a grease-stained t-shirt approached from behind her car. Strands of sun-bleached hair peeked out from under an L.A. Dodgers baseball cap. No thanks, Shelley rolled down her window. I'm just going to fill up. The sign says self-serve. The woman, a girl really, couldn't have been much older than 16. That sign's only there for when it gets busy, she replied. The rest of the time I do the pumping. There's no extra charge. Want me to check the oil? And charge me $10 for a quart, I bet. Well, Shelley relented. Always the good-hearted sucker. Okay. She pulled on the hood latch, got out of the car, and stretched. The ocean's salt air tickled her nose, replacing the pungent smell of burned homes and vegetation. Down a side street, sand dunes loomed in between condominiums. There were tables and chairs set out under umbrellas along a wide sidewalk. Large, mature trees lined both sides of the street. Boss Mustang, ma'am, looks like a 65. Before Shelley could answer, the girl squatted next to a taillight and examined it closely. Wow, it's a 64 and a half. After inserting the gas nozzle, she smiled at Shelley for an instant while returning to the front of the car. Classic ride, she said, lifting the heavy hood with one hand and snapping the hood rod in place with the other. Thanks, Shelley's stomach growled. Where's the bathroom? Over there, concentrating on the oil dipstick, the girl pointed without looking. Shelley followed her direction to a wooden door. A hand-lettered piece of cardboard identified the room's purpose and didn't limit its use to a gender. Inside, the walls and floor had the worn look of having hosted countless sandy people in a hurry to relieve themselves and get back to an impatient world. The door had a partially functional deadbolt and a hole where the thumblock used to be. No partition hid the commode. Scratched into the walls were the usual assortment of names, phone numbers, and messages left by those who took the time to leave their mark. With her capri down around her ankles and squatting on a nest of toilet paper squares, Shelley tried to breathe through her mouth. After washing up, she stood still in front of the sink and listened to noises coming from outside. There was something enticing about being in a public space that afforded privacy, yet was close to strangers. 
department store dressing rooms were like that. She could easily eavesdrop on the conversations of the other women trying on their clothes. A secret pleasure. Carpinteria sounds were softer than the racket that was Glendale. The voice of a girl servicing her car, laughing and shouting an insult at somebody. A man shouted back and laughed. A cash register opened with an old-fashioned ring. The clack-clack of a skateboard rattled by. Somebody fired up one of those infernal leaf blowers. At the sound of children giggling and approaching the restroom, Shelley quickly turned the deadbolt and opened the door. Oh, I love the sense of sounds. It just really seems like it brings the scene to life. So thank you for that. Well, I like to try to describe sounds. You did a wonderful job with it. (laughs) Okay, thank you. So speaking of the setting, I'm really curious about, so Carpinteria is a real place in California. And so some people will have known it or have experienced it and people live there and, you know, ride through there. And I'm curious about writing about this real place that people might recognize and where you can imagine and explore and, you know, what has to stay the same and what you can change, especially both for readers who know it, but for those of us who don't. Well, I was drawn to Carpinteria when I was living in Southern California, uh, pretending to be a surfer. And Carpinteria was a uh, surfing center. And um, friends of mine, we would do the coast up and down from Hermosa Beach up to Carpinteria, really, about the northern end of our travels. And um, I got to like the town. And it um, stayed as a somewhat aspect of my life, having later on in life met friends who were also very attached to the town. It has a charm of its own. And as a matter of fact, uh, the cover art was done by a friend of mine who was also a Carpinteria friend, uh, uh, someone who really loved it as well, and also an artist, and decided to draw up the photo, the, uh, the, uh, the art for the cover just as a sort of a, a salute to the um, the pleasures and the and the the unique aspect of the little town, so it was a great partnership having an artist friend, a carpenteria fan, and myself work together to create the book. Wow! So then, in terms of writing it, what had to stay true to you know carpenteria as you imagined it or knew it, and other people knew it? Were there any places as that you know? you could play with as a writer that maybe weren't necessarily there or histories you could invent or even having your character narrate, like navigate through this, the streets. Right. Right. Well, I've, I've always learned that um, when you're writing fiction, uh, you really will never capture a setting until you, what I call get boots on the ground. You have to walk the walk. You have to get into the location and feel your way around because there's so much to learn just being there, just catching the vibes, just s- sensing it and, and, and reacting it and, and writing that down and, and getting a feel for the neighborhoods. And yes, Carp Cafe is almost entirely fictionalized in terms of facilities. Um, there's a bar, there's a, a, an office building, uh, there's Carp Cafe. None of that exists. But I put together the kind of feeling, and, and by the way, I'm looking forward to doing a promotion of uh, the book in Carpinteria 
uh, come up in October. So it's going to be fun to uh, have a couple of old timers and, and townspeople there to tell me what I got wrong. <laughs> Very bold, Jim. <laughs> True. I hope it goes well. <laughs> yeah. I know. It'll be a challenge, I'm sure. But it'll be fun. We'll, we'll you know, there's going to be drinks and we're going to have a party and uh, we'll, we'll raise it up. <laughs> Absolutely love that. So with that party celebratory and challenge in mind, if we could have one final reading, please. Yes. All right. This one uh, now focuses on a secondary character called Dave Hartman, who winds up coalescing with Shelley at the end of the book. So Dave Hartman is a, a 50, late 50s has-been surfer who ha- has been a carpenteria stalwart for many years and um, is kind of like your basic beach bum kind of a guy. And he gets acquainted with a new arrival in town, Sue. Sue claimed she was 20 years old. She looked younger, but whatever her age, she was most certainly blonde, a total knockout in her spandex bikini, and she was Dave Hartman's most recent accomplishment. She came from San Jose, she said, on a Greyhound bus, running away from oppressive influences, she said a sleepy little seaside town just south of Santa Barbara, Carpinteria, was as far as her money would take her. Dave befriended the vagabond soon after she dragged her tattered duffel bag through the front door of the Carpinteria Cafe. She had a fresh cut above her left eye. Her chapped, puffy lips looked like they would erupt any second. It was summertime. Anything could happen. It didn't take Dave long to learn about Sue's insatiable appetite for pizza, sex, and parties. She had other desires, but nothing interfered with the top three. Her duffel bag was filled with books, thick, heavy things with ponderous titles and very few pictures. Dave thought he fell in love one sunny afternoon when he found Sue sleeping in his hammock with a book over her face. He plucked the book off her perfect, perky nose. What are you reading, he asked. The title was in French. Sue woke with a start, crinkling her blue eyes against the sunlight. Arthur Rimbaud, she said, saying the name as if everybody knew who Mr. Rimbaud was. Someone from around here? Not even close. Sue got out of the hammock and flashed Dave a condescending smile. He died in Marseille a long time before Carpinteria was invented. Was I supposed to know that? Dave's defensive side bubbled up. Of course not, dearie. Dead French poets are a funny hobby of mine. Kind of strange, huh? Sue sidled up to Dave and put her arms around his neck. Simmer down, lover boy. Kiss me and vanquish Arthur's ghost. He could be a nuisance sometimes. Sue's mysterious ways set the pace for the rest of Dave's summer. His relationship with Sue careened from ecstasy to acrimony and back again. At age 60, he discovered lost reservoirs of passion and rage, and Sue reciprocated by throwing things. Books, mostly. His cottage took a beating. 
It was no secret that she fooled around with younger, other guys, but he ignored that. She teased him about his one-dimensional surfing lifestyle and his funky little beach house, but it was all in fun. She claimed to have an ex-boyfriend in San Francisco who was a hell's angel, and when she got drunk and mad, she would threaten to call the guy and blow Dave's cover. So far, it hadn't happened. Thank you so much for such engaging readings and for spending this time with us. And before we go, can I ask, where can readers find or buy the book? Two places. Uh, the publisher, Adelaide Books, uh, Adelaide Publishing, uh, has a website that uh, offers uh, the book for sale. And, of course, Amazon and Barnes and & Nobles, uh, the other typical um, retail outlets. Wonderful. So readers can go anywhere they buy books, and they can also go to directly to your publisher and pick up their copy. That's right. Thank you so much for this evening. It's been such a joy, and a, I just love talking to you and, of course, hearing you read. So thank you. Thank you, Yvonne. It's been my pleasure. I really appreciate it. Good luck. Oh, thank you.